Father, as we come to you this morning, and as we prepared our hearts singing about you, God, we're reminded of what you have done for us and what your Son has accomplished on our behalf. Father, we now come to you and we ask that you would speak to us through your word. We ask that you would minister to us through the Holy Spirit, teaching us and showing us and convicting us. And Father, I pray that as we gather around your word this morning, that Father, we will submit ourselves, we will present ourselves, and Father, we will align ourselves under your word. God, we are grateful and thankful for the truths and the good news that you give us to sing about. So, Father, I pray over every man and woman and boy and girl here this morning. Father, I pray for their souls. I pray for their hearts. I pray for their spiritual posture this morning. Father, I pray that we as a church, we might not only look to you this morning, but Father, we may devote our lives to making much of you each and every single day. Be with this church. Be with this people. And may we bring glory and honor to you. And I ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, Greg, for... Leading us and those who serve with you, thank you for leading us this morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. When you came in and you got one of those bulletins, on the back of that, there's some notes if you want to reference that during our time together in the Word. But Exodus 34 is where we're going to continue at this morning in our study of God's Word together. Sometimes I take for granted that everybody in the room knows everybody in the room. And so if this uh, morning and, and you're unfamiliar with the church, you're unfamiliar with me, or maybe you're watching or listening via online, I need to clarify something. When I talked about the gorgeous brunette, that's my wife. I don't talk about every woman in the church that way. And so if, uh, if you're unfamiliar with the church or you're not really sure who I was referring to, you're like, this is kind of a weird place that he just talks about random women like that. Um, that was more of a personal privilege that I took. So if, if, I don't want that to be a cloud over the rest of our time together this morning. So it was a reference about my wife. And so please don't think that uh, you're now wondering what I think about your wife. So I'm just telling you, I, I just want to make sure we're all in the clear this morning. Um, so uh, my my beautiful bride, Jaylene, was the one that read the scripture this morning, and uh, she's the only person that I talk about like that, right? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So, so Exodus 34 is where we're going to continue in the Word of God this morning. We have been looking all throughout the book of Exodus, and the book of Exodus is just rich with example and story and model and picture of how God takes a people called the Israelites and he brings them out of bondage in the Egyptian bondage. He takes them to the promised land and he sets them apart as his chosen people. And you go all the way back into Exodus chapter 1, or actually you go even further back to Genesis chapter 12 where God takes Abram and the rest of his descendants and he sets them apart. And that has then carried out all the way now to 2023 where you still have not just the nation of Israel but you have the Jewish people as still being God's chosen 
people. And so, especially in the book of Exodus, you see where God is bringing these people out. He is setting them apart, not just because of their identity and who they are in the eyes of God, but he's also setting them apart in their customs, their practices, and their behaviors apart from the rest of the people in the world. And so not only were they set apart because of how God saw them, but they were set apart because of how the people saw them. So... We're looking at that as a church because as a church, in a New Testament sense, God has set apart Christians. He has set apart believers. He has set apart the church to be different. Our identity in the eyes of God is different because of the blood of Jesus Christ covering our sins. And therefore, our identity in the eyes of the world should be different because people should be able to see a difference in us. The big fancy word is sanctification. It's the idea that when we get saved and when God sets us apart, forgives our sins because of the blood of Jesus, he now sets us apart and not only should he see the difference, but the world should see the difference. So we've been studying through the book of Exodus going, what does this look like? Because I don't know about you, but for me personally, in 2023, it is hard to navigate those, those lines of how do we live a set-apart life while also being able to reach and communicate to the world around us. And that is a difficulty. We're always being bombarded with, well, you're supposed to love the sinner and hate the sin. Yes, but how do we navigate in a world of godless ideologies? How do we navigate in a world of rampant disobedience to God's word? How do we how do we navigate these waters? And so Exodus has been showing us, hopefully, I hope it's been showing you, it's been showing me, he's been teaching us how it is that we live set apart. So the last several weeks we've been talking about sin. <clears throat> Especially in Exodus 32 and Exodus 33, you see where Moses is up on the mountain back in Exodus 32 and God is downloading, if you will, to Moses, this is my law, these are my commands, this is what I expect for you to do. And while Moses is up on the mountain getting the word of God, getting the law of God, the command of God, all of these things, you got Aaron and the rest of the people, they're down there at the base of the mountain of Mount Sinai and they start doing some silly stuff. They start doing some dumb stuff. And I've told you before, you play dumb games, you get dumb prizes. And so they're down there, they decide to make them an idol, they decide to start worshiping that idol. And all of this thing starts to unravel. God is up on the mountain with Moses and he says, hey, go down there and fix it. That's my paraphrase. That's not exactly, the, that's not a quote from scripture. But he tells him, go down there. And so we saw in Exodus 32 and Exodus 33, we see how the deceit of sin will creep in and get you and I to think, oh, this is okay. This isn't a big deal. This isn't a problem. We saw where the effect of sin comes in and it starts to warp our thinking and starts to warp our understanding of what is right and what is wrong and what is true and what is false. Then we talked about the result of sin and how that separates us from God. And the last week we were looking at the, the, our response in sin. So if you think back to last week, when Moses comes down and he tells the people, you have sinned against the holy God, the people are like, that's not good. And Moses is like, no, it, it, it's not good. And God is speaking to the people through Moses and going, this is not good. And if we remember where we were at last week, when we left off, the people have uh, gone into a state of mourning. They've gone into a state of repentance. <clears throat> Excuse me. You get to Exodus 33 and you see not only God or not only Moses telling the people this is what it looks like to demonstrate repentance, to live out repentance. But then last week in Exodus 33, Moses goes up and seeks to intercede on behalf of the people to God, saying, God, please show us mercy. God, please show us grace. God, please do not completely wipe us off the face of the earth. 
And if you look down there in Exodus 33 and verse 17, it says, The Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So when the people began to mourn and the people began to repent, and Moses interceded on behalf of the people to God, God was willing to show his mercy to the people. And then you get down there in 17, all the way through the rest of the chapter in Exodus 33, and we see where Moses looks at God and says, show me your glory. God lets him see the backside of his glory because Moses can't handle the front side of his glory. And then Exodus 34, verses 1 through verse 9, God says, all right, the two tablets that you broke when you went down and you saw the idolatry and the paganism going on, get you two more tablets, come back up on the mountain. And then you get to Exodus 34 and verse 10, which is where we're going to start this morning. So the last four weeks we've been talking about sin and the, the, the result, the effect, the deceit of sin on us. And last week we were talking about how we respond to sin. This morning I want to turn a corner, if you will, and I want us to see together we see what God does in response to our repentance. When we come with contrition of heart and when we come with a repentant heart and we come to God and we say, God, I have sinned against you. God, I am wrong. God, I have gotten off the direction you have for me. And we come and repent to God. How does then God respond to us? So please do not misunderstand me this morning. I am not trying to tell you that every person that feels bad or feels sorry, this is what God does for you. Brother, my aim this morning is to remind us what God, how God responds to us when we come to God in repentance. Not entitlement. Not coming with an attitude that he owes us something. And not saying, well, because I own a Bible or because I go to church. Now this is how God then responds to my sin. What we get an example of is how God responds to our Repentance. And repentance just simply means that you recognize you've sinned against God. You see the gravity of what that sin is. And you repent. You turn away from your sin and you turn to God. Now why do I think this is a big deal? Because Christianity is the only religion that teaches that God then responds to our repentance. Buddhism Hinduism, Baha'ism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. All of those, you come and the idea is try better, try harder, do something of your own. And yet when you come to Christianity, Christianity teaches that when you come and you repent before a holy God, this holy God then responds to you. So this morning, I want us to learn together of how God responds to us. There may be some of you this morning that you may say, well, you know what, this really doesn't meet me because I'm not in a repentant type of mind. I hope that when God brings you to the point that you repent, that you'll realize how loving God is. Or maybe you're here this morning and you know that you need to repent, but you're scared. You're scared if I repent and I turn back to God, what will that mean? What will that look like? And I want to remind you and encourage you this morning that this same God that responds to the people here in Exodus 34 is the same God that is ready to respond to you this morning. Amen. So I want you to see with me how God then responds to the people's, <coughs> excuse me, how God then responds to the people's 
repentance. In verse 10 of Exodus 34, let's pick it up. I'll read for you out of my copy if you will follow along out of your copy of God's word. And notice how God then responds to Moses and then via an extension he responds to the people. And he said, this is God, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as, not ever, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I commend you this day. The first response that we see out of God when it comes to the repentance of the people is that God reveals his Mercy. I have said it before and I'll say it again when you think about the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is defined as not getting something you deserve. And grace is defined as getting something you do not deserve. And so right here in this passage, even though the people have sinned against God, and even though God has told them you have sinned against me and there's consequences and there's a problem with that, God still shows his Mercy. And in verse 10, you see at least three different times God says it's not a matter of what you're going to do. It's not a matter of how good you're going to be. Or it's not a matter of what someone else is going to do. It's a matter of what I am going to do. So just right there in verse 10, you may make a note of this. God says, I am making a covenant. I will do marvels. The awesome thing that I will do with you. And then the first part of verse 11, he says, observe what I command you. Over and over again, God is going to remind them that this whole thing called salvation, redemption, this whole thing called any kind of hope or help they have, it's all from God. And anytime you and I come with another breath in our lungs or we come with another opportunity to spend another day serving him, it is because of God's mercy on us. Every day we wake up, it is because God is showing mercy to us. And when we come in repentance, it's not because that I have cleaned myself up or I have earned myself out of my sin. When I come with a repentant heart to God, God always shows me mercy. And yet, the church has not always historically done a good job of reflecting the mercy of God. People will come in and will say, oh yeah, you're bad, you're dirty, you're filthy, bah, you know, boo hiss, you shouldn't do that. And we fail to understand that we are to demonstrate mercy just the same way that God demonstrates mercy. And so here in chapter 34, when Moses is interceding on behalf of the people, and Moses is there, the people are at the mountain, and they're looking at God saying, God, what are you going to do with us? And instead of God going, boom, you're done. He shows them mercy. And when we come to God today, with a contrite heart and a heavy heart because of our sin against God, we don't have to think that God's going to come up and just beat us, rub it in our face, or look at us and say, I told you so. The kind of God that we serve and the kind of God that looks over us, the kind of God that we look back to is the kind of God that comes and knows who we are and yet shows us mercy. Here in the text, God says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. Why? Because God was not done with them. God was not done with the people, even though the people had turned from God, even though the people had rebelled against God, even though people that, even though the people did not deserve God, God was not done with the people. Hallelujah that we have this same God today that is not done with 
us. Let me read you a passage in the New Testament sense out of Ephesians chapter 2. Just, just listen to it as I read this to you. Paul writes and he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and the sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the princes of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What Paul is saying is that in your state, in your sinful state, in who you are outside of Christ, you are nothing. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which, we, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and send us and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his great grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for him that we should walk in them. Over and over again, not just in the Old Testament, Exodus 34, but in the New Testament, Ephesians 2, just two examples. We see the mercy of God on display. And when we come to God and we repent of our sins, we repent of our rebellion to God, God doesn't come in with wrath and anger and bitterness. God responds with mercy. But then that's not the only response that God has. <coughs> Not only does he respond by revealing his mercy, but God also responds to our repentance by warning us against relapse. You may think, well, relapse, what kind of a word is relapse? Well, relapse is just simply the idea of returning to an old, be uh, old behavior or returning to an old pattern. So here, in the case of the Jewish people, they had been serving foreign gods in Egypt. They get out of Egypt. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. They return back to serving foreign gods, idols, if you will, doing the things that were God had explicitly said he was against. And so now God is coming to them and saying, hey, let me warn you. Let me warn you of the danger of relapsing back into your former way of life that was sin against me. Notice where you see this, verse 11. He says, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with them, let make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. Lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they Whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited to eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their god, their, their gods. You may say, Well, Spence, what in the world did you just read? What God is telling them is be careful. You see, you're headed into this promised land, and this promised land is full all is, is full of all the it. People, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the, 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 uh, the uh, Hivites, the Perizzites, all of these people, all the ites are in the land. And so what God says is when you come into the land, I'm going to be driving out all of the ites. The problem is, is the reason why they're being driven out is because they are steeped, they are entrenched in idle behavior. 
So when you come in, you need to get rid of that idolatry because this idolatry will then, if it is left unchecked, will then begin to influence and affect you. In other words, what God is saying is, is that this paganism that you're going to encounter when you get in the promised land, you need to be on guard because paganism at its root is sin. Now I realize that pagan, the idea of a pagan or paganism, that may be an old-fashioned word to some of you. But the idea, if you look up a definition of what a pagan is, it's several different definitions. One is a person who is not a Christian. Another definition is a person that worships nature or the earth. Another definition is somebody that is irreligious, meaning non-religious, or they're hedonistic. And you may say, well, Spence, what does hedonistic mean? Well, hedonism is the idea that it's whatever makes you happy, whatever brings you pleasure, whatever brings you satisfaction. Hedonism, hedonism is the pursuit of you making yourself the most important person around. So it says that when you are irreligious, meaning non-religious, or all you are is concerned with your pleasure, your happiness, your satisfaction, your content, that would be defined as a hedonistic person. All of these then are under the umbrella of being a pagan. And that's what you see here in verse 11 down through verse 16. He says all of these ites, <clears throat> they have false idols, they have false gods, they have false forms of worship. And so when you come in the land, be on guard because all of this paganism is seeking to draw you to itself, to seeking to influence you, to seeking to get you to participate in that. And so he says in the last part of verse 16, take you, and he gives us a warning. You're going to come in the land. You're going to take the pagans' daughters to be wives for your sons. And then those pagan daughters are then going to turn the hearts of your sons away from God. Oh, well, Spence, that's a really old-fashioned idea. Just this last week, I was listening to National Public Radio the National Public Radio had a story about the ice cap in Antarctica. You may not be aware of this, but right now it's considered to be the middle of the winter season in Antarctica. I don't know who's down there to report about this, but that's, that's what they're saying. And they said that one report has started off by saying that the ice cap, as far as how wide or how big um, across the ice cap is, that it is the lowest talking about landmass, volume of area, it is the smallest ice cap ever recorded. And you're just like, oh, that's bad. And then another story went along later and it said that it is the lowest, it is the smallest ice cap since the last 50 years that they have been recording the data. Now, one of the cool things that you'll see about uh, the new cycle today is usually they would come out and be very clear about what they wanted you to think. Now they've taken so much heat because of their liberal, left-wing, godless ideologies that they're scared to tell you exactly what to think, so they'll leave a lot of blanks for you to fill in on your own. So when they say, well, the ice cap's the smallest it's been in recorded history, and they just leave it, like, what are you going to think? You're going to think, oh, global warming, i got to turn my stove off, Right? That's what you're going to think. So you're going to think it's our fault. But what they're doing is they're saying, hey, there is a problem. We have seen a trend. We've looked into the past. We see the present. And we are concerned if this trend continues in the future. Make sense? So that's what they're doing right now in science and climatology. Well, let's just take that same concept to morality and the culture. Can't we look? to where we are at 50 or 60 years ago when it came to morality and the culture? Can't we look to where we are at today 
And can't we look to the future with a certain amount of fear and trepidation and a little bit of concern about where we are heading to in the future? That is what God is saying to Moses and what God is saying to the people. I'm warning you, I'm warning you against falling headlong into paganism because of the downstream implications and the downstream effect of what paganism does. You leave here today, and you get on your phone, you get on your computer, and you just type in an internet search, they're coming for your children. And watch some of the videos from pagans that are openly chanting and defiantly in your face telling you they are coming for the minds and the hearts of our children. And it's not something that we go, oh, well, that's 30 years from now. No, it's happening right now. You can get on, you can get on different news feeds and you can look at some of what used to be considered <coughs> sweet and innocent producers like Disney. And you can get on there and you can find out that they are intentionally creating content to, to, to intentionally form the thinking of what is right and what is wrong and what is normal and what is abnormal. These things are taking place right now. And so God comes in and he says, hey, Moses, you repented it to me. That is great. I, my mercy is sufficient. But understand, to keep you from having to come back and repent to me again, understand that there is a danger of paganism. And there's a danger of us relapsing into paganism. You think one more example. You think to 1 Kings chapter 11. We looked at this last Wednesday night and you got Solomon. Wisest man ever lived, will ever live, had everything until he got married and 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 married. The Bible said he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. I'll spend, look, you can go back to 1 Kings 11. I mean, you can see it. I'm not making this up. A thousand wives. And the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 11 that the wives where he got the wives from were not from other Jewish Israelite women, but he got his wives from other pagan cultures, and it was the wives that turned his heart against God. And when they turned his heart against God, God Solomon began to worship other idols, began to worship little G gods, and then that was the end of Solomon. So God says here in Exodus 34, I am merciful. But I want you to understand there is constantly the danger of you relapsing back into the old practices of pagan idolatry. So then you get down to verse 17. There's just one verse here that I want to point out to you out of verse 17. We see the third response that God has. So God reveals his mercy. God warns against the relapse. But then God repeats the standard. Look at verse 17. God says, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Some of, your, some of your translations may say you should not make yourself any idol of cast metal. It's like God uses this in the midst of talking about the relapse and in the midst of talking about the solution that's coming up. He uses this right here in the middle and he says, let me remind you of the standard that I have put in front of you. In other words, he's coming to them and saying, let me remind you that you already have a creator. You have a creator, so therefore you do not need to make yourself any god of cast metal. You already have a god, big G. You do not need more gods 
little g. So he tells them, you do not need these things. These things are not good. Well, where does he get that from? Well, you can go back in the book of Exodus to Exodus chapter 20. And you get back to Exodus chapter 20. And in verse 3 and 4, the first two commandments that you see given in the Ten Commandments is what? You shall have no other gods before me. You should not make for yourself idols. Then you get over to Exodus chapter 32, and they're left a while with their own devices, and what do they do? The first thing they do is they start making themselves an idol. And then what do they do with that idol? They begin to worship that idol. See, the danger that what God is telling the people is it's not the idol that was such the problem. The problem was their worship. And I want you to understand this morning that it's not a matter of the idol. It's a matter of the worship that we give the idol. Am I saying that idols are okay? No. But what I'm saying is, is God is looking at the condition. God is looking at the attitude of the heart. What is an idol? An idol is anything, an object of admiration, adoration, or devotion. An idol is anything. It could be a fishing reel. It could be a boat. It could be a four-wheeler. It could be a TV remote. It could be a watch. It could be a pair of clothes. It could be a relationship. It could be a job. It could be a, a sack full of money. It could be a new vehicle. I don't know what it is. It could be anything that you are devoted to more than you're devoted to God. And he said, when you set these things up, this is always going to turn you away from me. This is always going to take the place of me. So he reminds there in verse 17 that here's the standard. <clears throat> the standard is, is you're not going to have an idol. Because the idol is never an innocent thing. The idol is never something that has no effect or impact in your house. An idol always has an impact in what it is that is around. And we've got to be on guard. Because I doubt that very many of us, I, I don't think any of us, if I, the, one, the faces that I know, I don't think any of us go home and on our mantle we have this big idol that we get every morning and we, oh, and we worship. But some of us walk out of this building and go get into our idol. Some of us, as soon as we leave here, and sometimes even before we leave here, we pull out our idol out of our pocket and check to see if the idol has anything to tell us. Some of us will get up in the morning and go to our idol. Some of us will log on and engage in our idol. Some of us will deny that it's an idol. Some of us will deny that it has any impact, but at the end of the day, it's whatever we worship. And so God tells them there in Exodus 34 and verse 17, he says, be on guard. Be on guard because here is the standard. The standard is, is there is only one God and that spot's been filled. And there is only one God and you don't need to make another one. There's only one God and he doesn't need you putting competition around him. There is only one God and anything that you, sub you substitute for that God is not God and it leads to idolatry and sin against God. And now you and I may be here this morning and we may go, well that's not fair, that's not okay, I don't like that. Well, then you go and create yourself and create your own world and create your own people, and then you can decide your own rules. But God has said, I'm God and no idols. So here in the passage, God is responding. God has responded to the people. He starts off with mercy. He warns against them relapsing back into the pagan practices they were, they were used to. <clears throat> he reminds them of the standard that he is expecting them to live their life by. 
10 and verse 18 all the way down to verse 26, he offers them a solution. He says, okay, so you've been living in disobedience. You've been acting in ways that are contrary to my word. Let me tell you how you can live an obedient, faithful life to me. He doesn't just go, you're bad, you're terrible, go figure it out. He sets them down and he says, this is what you can do in order to live faithfully before me. Now, I'm not going to read verse 18 all the way down through 26 for the sake of context, but you might write this down in your margin, you might write this down in the notes. Let me just cap this for you. What is he going to do? He's going to talk about the things that you celebrate. This is verse 18, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's going to talk about make sure that you guard yourselves and you put these handrails up by the things that you celebrate. Verse 19 through 20, he talks about the things that you possess. He talks about making sure and consecrating the firstborns to me. Hey, this matters. These things are God. These thi- gods, these things aren't me. Verse 21, now the verse 24, he talks about the schedule. And for more specifically, he talks about the Sabbath. The six days of work, the seventh day of rest. He wants to tell them, hey, live a life that serves me, that follows me, then these are the things that you do. Verse 21 through 24 is your schedule and your time. And verse 25 through, through verse 26 is your resources and your offerings. In other words, what God is saying is practice obedience. I have told you, this is what I want you to do. Do it. Well, I didn't understand exactly what he said. Well, I'd I'd like to have a second opinion. Or, oh, you know what, I'm not really sure if he meant... Do that or do it. You know, and we try to uh, make all kinds of excuses and justifications for our disobedience. But what God just simply tells them in verse 18 down through verse 26 is, listen, if you want to live a life that is faithful to me, then practice obedience. Submit to my word or submit to God's word. Because God tells us in the text, this is what it looks like to be obedient. This is what it looks like to be faithful. This is how you are to follow after me. And so Moses is listening to God and God is just saying, Listen, Moses, this isn't something that you have to create or something that you have to manufacture. It's simply just a matter of saying, what does the Bible say? That's all it is. No, Spence, it's harder than that. No, it's not harder than that. It's not more difficult than that. It's just simply a matter of saying, this is God's word. I'm going to do what God's word says. Well, what happens if it doesn't do what I want it to say? Well, then we submit ourselves to God's word. What if it says something that I don't like? Well, then we put ourselves on the authority of God's word. What if it says something that is, that is unpopular or isn't more socially accepted? Then we don't submit to the culture. We submit to the word of God. So he says, this is the solution. Church, in 2023, you want to know what it means and what it takes for us to live a life that is honoring and glorifying to God? We don't have to come up with a new program. It's not a matter of a curriculum. It's not a matter of the aesthetics in the place. It's not a matter of the outward appearance. It's not a matter of what we do or what time we meet. It's a matter of, is this our authority? He says, you want a solution for your life? You want to keep yourself from feeling dirty and guilty? You want to keep yourself from constantly walking around in the conviction of sin in your life? You want to keep yourself from always having to duck the preacher because you don't want to have to answer the questions the preacher is asking? You want to get get rid from that always having to hide from the church people or being in the Walmart or being in the store and you're walking down and you see that person coming, you're like, got to go, got to go. And we avoid 
I've knocked on the door before. And I can hear the TV inside. And I can hear feet shuffling. And I can see the blind over there crack. And I can see him look at and look at it's me. And I'm like, psst, preacher, we're not home. We're not home. So they turn the TV down. They get real quiet inside. I'm not selling encyclopedias. I'm not representing Amway. I don't have vacuum cleaners. I'm, I'm just here to talk to you, but what do they do? They don't want to talk to me. Why? I don't know. Maybe they don't like me. Maybe it's something I did to offend them. Or maybe because they're like, we don't want to have to be reminded that we're not doing what God wants us to do. So you want to know a solution for feeling contentment and peace in your life? It's right here. It's right here. We practice obedience. We submit to God's word. And so he says, these are the things. Now, he, yes, he gives them, as Corey will talk about, he'll give them boxes to check. <laughs> but, you know, the boxes to check are not meant to be a, a legalistic thing. It's just saying, hey, these are measurements to know if I'm practicing the disciplines that God has put in front of me. So like you get up in the morning and you think about what do I got to do to get ready for the day? Well, some of you need to wash your face. All of us need to brush our teeth. Some of you need to comb your hair. I don't, I've taken care of that. Some of you need to get dressed. I mean, there's things that we do to get ready for the day. The same way when it comes to our spiritual lives, what do we do? We get up, we spend time with God. We listen to God. We pray to God. We submit to God. We seek God's voice and God's face in our lives. These are the things that we do. They can become boxes to check or they become disciplines that keep our life holy before God. So he says, practice this obedience, submit to God's word. <clears throat> and it all gets kind of culminated and all kind of wrapped up as bearing the fruit of repentance. So if the people are sorry and they say, we realize we've sinned against the holy God and we realize that we are wrong. And God says, all right, Moses, since you have sinned, these are the things that show that you're repentant of your sin." might write this down, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8. John the Baptist is coming on the scene as he's doing this baptizing. There's some Pharisees. These Pharisees come up to him and, they, and they're trying to look the part like they are repenting and they are turning back to God. And so John the Baptist makes a statement there in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8. And he looks at the religious leaders and he says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now what does he mean? He doesn't mean that salvation is a work-based theology. He doesn't mean that salvation is something you have to earn. What he's saying is, is that the saved person will look saved, talk saved, act saved. That the saved person will live a life different from the rest of the world around them. The saved person will not live like a lost person. The same person will not talk like a lost person. The same person will look differently. And so you go back to Exodus 34, and when Moses is hearing this from God, God is saying, listen, if you all are repentant, you're going to act repentant. And it's not a matter of producing the fruit, it's a matter of bearing the fruit. And there's a difference. What, bears the, what produces the fruit in the Christian's life is the work of the Holy Spirit. But when we, as Christians, are being led and used by God, and the Holy Spirit is producing fruit in our lives, then we bear that fruit. Which, what does that mean? That means that we have the kind of fruit that people can look at and say, that's a Christian because of the fruit of their hands, the fruit of their mouth, the fruit of their hearts, the fruit of who they are. So he says, bear this fruit. Of repentance. So in this passage, as God is looking back to Moses and he's looking by extension to the people, and he says, Here's my response. 
I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to warn you against relapsing. I'm going to repeat to you the standards so you know what I'm holding you accountable to. And then I'm going to offer you a solution on then how to go about in keeping my word. And that is such a, such a mind-boggling thing because in the day and age we're living in, we want the result without the change. So some complications in my family history led a number of people in my, my immediate circle said, Hey, you need to go to the heart doctor. I find myself at the heart doctor going through a series of tests. And just this last week, went down there for a follow-up visit. Heart doctor comes in and says, well, here's the deal, Spence. He said, your cholesterol levels are just a little bit elevated. And your blood pressure is just a little bit elevated. I was like, okay. He's like, so there's some medication we can put you on to bring those back down into reasonable range. I said, wouldn't it get back down there if I would improve my diet and exercise more? Well, yeah, yeah, that would work too, but or we can put you on this medication. Well, then that's where we're at, right? That's where we're at as a society. I don't want to have to change. I just want to pill, but I don't want to put out the effort. Now listen, now just think about this in the spiritual sense. We want God to change our heart, but we don't want to have to put any effort for the change to take place. So we want the result without the change. We want to feel better. We don't want to have peace. We don't want to have, I'm sorry, guilt. We don't want to have any kind of burden over our sin. We don't want to change anything about our lifestyle, anything about our behavior. We just want to know that God is going to take us as we are. And God reminds us over and over again that it's not a matter of your works that save you or your performance that saves you. It's God that saves you. But once God saves you, you will be a different person. Sometimes that means change. Sometimes that means adjustments. Sometimes that means you and I fearing God more than we fear man. So then how do we take this passage? How do we take this passage and plug it in to the three core values of the church? Talked a lot, three core values of this church, building families, teaching the Bible, being the church. So then how do we take a passage like this, <coughs> excuse me, and how do we plug it in to then how do we apply this within the core values of the church? So quickly, let me just give you, uh, through this application grid, let me just tell you how this passage, to me, fits into our core values of the church. Number one, God gives us a template. When we think about how do we use this passage to build families, we understand that God has given us a template. In the New Testament sense, here's the template. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Parents, raise your children to fear God. Children, obey your parents because they are God's representative while you're in the home. There's a template there that God has given for how we live a successful life. Does that mean that everything will be okay? No. There will always be bumps. There will always be challenges. There will always be all kinds of problems that Satan throws our way, but there's a template. And here in Exodus 34, God has given us a template. Repent, turn, obey, follow, worship. All of those things are there, and God gives us a template. We want to build families based upon the Word of God. God shows us how to do it. Secondly, when it comes to teaching the Bible, we need to understand that our sin is not a new sin. So the sin we see in Exodus 34 is not a new sin, and it's not a one-time sin. This is a continual pattern that we see all throughout the Bible and all throughout history. 
You go to the book of Judges and you see this cycle happening where the people, they repent to God and they turn to God and they get their mind right and everything's great, hunky-dory. Some generations go, they're back into paganism. They're back into idolatry. God sends persecution. God sends suffering upon them. They're like, oh no, please help us. Please save us. God sends some type of a judge, brings about a deliverance, and then all of a sudden they turn back to God. And there's a cycle, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, over and over and over. Well, why do we teach God's word? Because we're teaching people... That this sin we see in Exodus 34 and the sin we see in 2023, it is not a new sin. And we see over and over again how God deals with it, how people deal with it, and how we should deal with it. But then this last one. <clears throat> how do we be a church in light of Exodus 34? Well, notice what God is doing with Moses. is He's giving him a formula. He's giving him a recipe, if you will. And the recipe kind of goes something like this. You learn, and then you practice, and then you teach, and that'll culminate and result in faithfulness. So here in Exodus 34, what he's telling them is, is listen, if you'll repent, and you will learn that I am God, and that you are not God, and you've sinned against me, and then you will practice the disciplines and the obedience that I put in front of you. And then you will teach the people around you and the coming generations after you what it looks like to be obedient and follow after me. Then that will result in the faithfulness of the people. Let me bring it to 2023. If we will learn that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And that the biggest problem that all of us have is that we're separated from God by our sin. And we learn that the beauty of the gospel is that God loved us so much that he knew we couldn't save ourselves, so he sent his son to die on a cross to take our place. And we learn that it is not a matter of my works or your works or my goodness or your goodness, but we learn that it's a matter of believing that Jesus died for my sins. And I cry out to God and ask forgiveness of my sins, and because of the blood of Jesus Christ, God forgives me. And I learn what it means to be saved, and I learn the beauty of what it looks like to be forgiven of my sins before a holy God. But then I take what I've learned called the gospel, what Christ has done for us, and then I put it into practice. I follow, I follow the word of God. I do the things that the word of God has called me to do. I obey the commands of Christ, the model of Christ, the example of Christ. I practice what it means to be a Christian. And if I'm faithfully practicing what it means to be a Christian, then what I will do then is teach others what it looks like and what it means to be saved. And I will learn how much God loves me. And then I will practice what God has called for me. And then I will teach others what God can do for them. And when we learn and when we practice and when we teach, that will culminate into faithfulness where you see this organic idea of discipleship and evangelism going around and around in a cycle where you see a church of God's people and they understand this is what God has done for me, this is how I should live now, and this is how other people can have hope coming after me. And you see this cycle of maturity and you see this cycle of growth and you see this cycle that points to faithfulness, not faithfulness to a religion, not faithfulness to a denomination, not faithfulness to a community, but faithfulness to God. So how do we then respond to what God has done for us? So next is 34. The people have sinned against God. 
They repented to God. And God responds to the people. Now what we've done together as a church is we've read God's word and we've looked at what God's word said and hopefully there's been application that you've been able to say, hey, I, I get that. I, these are things that are applicable to my life. So now we have an opportunity to respond. You might be here this morning and it's been a long time since you repented. Repentance is not just a single thing. A repentance is something every time when you realize that you sin and you realize you sinned against God, repentance is an ongoing thing. As you sin, as you realize that you sinned against God, and as you turn from that sin, that is the cycle of repentance. Maybe this morning there's sin in your life that you say, God, I don't, it's not supposed to be here. It shouldn't be here. And while I'm holding on to it and while I'm not willing to get rid of it, God, I need to repent of it this morning. Or maybe you're here this morning and there's someone around you, someone in your life, <clears throat> that you know is in a lifestyle and a behavior of rebellion against God. And you would just say, God, I pray. I pray that you would get a hold of them. God, I pray that you'd get a hold of their hearts. And God, I, would say, I pray that you would save them before it's too late. And maybe this morning, your response is not to come and repent. Your response is to pray. Maybe there's a decision that God has put in your heart in your life. And you realize that God is calling you to it. And it's just a matter of you being willing to take the step of obedience and follow after God has called you. Maybe in a few moments as we go through a time of response, maybe your response to God this morning is to move. To move towards a couple of the pastors that will be here in the front and maybe you just need to come and say, this is what God is doing in my life. And I want to submit myself to the word of God in my life. Or another way that might be in a few moments, we're going to stand and I'm going to pray and then we're going to move into a time of response. And during that time of response, we're going to pass the offering plate. Maybe this morning, an act of your response to God is just to say, God, here I am. I give them my resources. I give them the things that you've given me. I give back to you for the ministry and the work of God. I don't know how your response looks like this morning. It may be something else. It may not be repentance. It may not be prayer. It may not be moving. It may not be giving. It may be something else. But we want to give you an opportunity this morning to respond. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, we're just going to move into a time of response. Be a couple of pastors here on either side of the platform. If you have something you need prayer or you need help with this morning. There'll be some men that will be coming up in a few moments that as I finish praying and as we begin to sing, they will begin to move out and uh, pass the plate this morning. And I don't know what your response looks like. But I want to give you an opportunity to respond as God leads us this morning. I have some ushers to come up. Let me pray for the offering. And then as we begin to sing, we'll move out. We'll pass the plate this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I pray for the hearts that need to repent this morning. Father, I pray for the people that need to pray this morning. Father, I pray for the decisions that need to be done this morning. God, I pray that they respond to you as you have responded to us. God, may your Holy Spirit be heavy upon those that it needs to be heavy on. God, may your Holy Spirit be merciful to those that need your mercy. God, may we as your people 
respond to you in a way that is glorifying and honoring to you. Bless us as we go through this time of response. Bless us as we move out through our day's activities. Bless us as we seek to obey and follow after you. And I ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.